Welcome to the Book Lovers Podcast from Spartanburg County Public Libraries. We're obsessed with books and pop culture, and we know you are too. I'm Joseph Henderson, the Media Specialist. I'm Carmenita Turner, the Media Collection Development Librarian. And I'm Jess Herzog, the Director of Adult Services. It's fall, and that can only mean one thing. The new James Bond movie is finally coming out. One super fan plus two podcast hosts equals the conversation you're about to hear, punctuated by Bond puns, discussion of Bond eras, and what room we still have for James Bond in the 21st century. Let's get started. Of the three of us, you're probably the most bonded to today's topic. Oh, God, Carmenina. <laughs> <laughs> so what started that interest uh, in James Bond for you? Um, so I, I really don't completely know. <laughs> um, I, the first Bond film I saw was actually Skyfall in the theater. Okay. So that would have been, what, 2012, I guess, is when that came out. Um, and I had never seen... A Bond film before that. Oh, I had well. some, like, bits and pieces on TV. My dad would usually be watching them, um, but I had never seen one from start to finish before. And I was so struck by Skyfall as a film, and I still am today. Um, but at, there was a certain point where my partner and I said, let's watch every single James Bond film in order. <laughs> Date night. <laughs> yeah, it was a full year First process. Like we made a calendar and everything because of the, oh, there were 26 no. films. So there were one every two weeks, one every two weeks. Right. We did the full list in chronological order, starting with Dr. No. <laughs> <laughs> and then we also watched the two non Eon films. So Eon Productions makes all of the Bond films. And there were two that were outside of their licensing, one of which was a remake of Casino Royale. And one of which was Sean Connery's last time playing Bond. Um, and <laughs> It, like my entire year that year was defined by watching these films. The year of Bond. <laughs> it was a year of Bond. And um, after, by that point, I was just like, I feel like an expert now. <laughs> and even more so at this point, because that was mm, four or five years ago. And now it's like, if there's ever a Bond film on TV my partner will just leave it on TV. He'll just put it on. <laughs> Pluto TV actually sometimes has a James Bond channel. And oh, he'll just turn nice. that on and watch it all day long. We'll just have it running in the background, almost like background noise at that point, because we know the film so well. And it's just, it's become something for us that's, it's something that's bonded us together. Huh? <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, God. A central bond of yeah. your relationship. Yep, it is a bond between us. Terrible. God. Um, but it's also something that just we can go back and look at through different lenses and watch over and over and over again and catch different things each time. Because, like, film stays the same, but the world that we're living in is so much different. Right. And that's been really, really interesting to just, like, look at and analyze and think about how this how this franchise came to be and where it is going forward, what it came from, how much it's impacted culture and society and, you know, James Bond as a character, the women of the films. There's just so much to think about and break down. So would you say that there's bound to be some kind of connection i'm gonna throw my shoe at you <laughs> god <laughs> but yes i guess so that's <laughs> always been my peripheral understanding of james bond is more the pop culture influence and how it is one of the few franchises that has been going on in a different iteration almost constantly it's one of the longest running film franchises of all time yeah it's a, I think Godzilla is the longest and then Bond is right behind it. Yeah. And then the interesting thing to compare it to like Godzilla is that people don't really get into the person behind the character of Godzilla. Fans of James Bond have intense discussions online, 
even arguments about who's the best Bond and who needs to be sure. the next Bond. Right. It's a very who's the best enthusiastic. Bond girl. What's the best theme song? Like there's yes. there are all the best plot line, best villain, best worst of all of them, the best Q, the best M. Yeah, there's. It seems like it's endlessly being dissected and torn apart by fans and non-fans alike. Like it's it's one of those things that there's just so much source material between the books and the films um, because a number of the films are actually like original stories that Ian Fleming hadn't written, but were based on this character and the concept of the world in which he lives. Um, there's so much to work with there and so much to really analyze and dig into. So for you two, I'm curious because I'm, I think of the three of us, the big, big bond fan here <laughs> by far. What are your relationships with James Bond like? Mine starts just the same way. I think a lot of people in the millennial generation starts the same way that yours kind of started. My parents were into it. It starts with a dad <laughs> watching a movie on a Tuesday night. Yeah. I feel like um, Brimmer, the baby boomer generation is really could sort of be sort of the source for a lot of modern fandom. And um, that's why I think a lot of us have our early exposure to most popular fandoms through um, sort of our parents that they're in the baby boomer generation and my dad was really into James Bond and my mom was and they had their thoughts about the Sean Connery versus Roger Moore of who was better to them it was always one of those two right just a matter of which one and um, I would maybe see a couple of piece parts of a few movies here and there but I never had a really strong interest in watching it and then um, I watched almost all of Casino Royale, but um, I think that I watched it sort of as a thing that my dad was watching and I just came in on it. Because then we watched it and you were like, I don't remember the way this film started. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Correct. I didn't remember much of anything of it. I just remembered the ending and how someone dies in the end. That right. was it. <laughs> what about you, Joseph? Um, prior to, I think it was last year, uh, I had not seen at james bond movie all the way through um and the one that i watched per jess's recommendation <laughs> i was gonna say was it your dad and pleading was <laughs> skyfall <laughs> here i am sitting um, in my flannel kind of like a dad yeah. telling you to watch a james bond movie sure, yeah um uh but prior to that you know the the conception that i had of the character was just as like as the archetypal um secret agent in fiction you know that is what you picture you picture uh the the sort of iconic um openings of uh, many of the films uh the sort of the silhouette um background yes. and the you know the, the sort of circle the circle of the gun scope moving around and you know i don't know there's so there's such a there's such a distinctive iconography that attaches itself to the Bond character. And the sound. Right. And it's just Multiple recognizable. Sounds, really. Um, yeah. you know, from the theme to to what have you. But um, you know, prior to prior to that, uh, beyond that iconography, um, I would say the two the two uh ways in which I had some sort of cultural exposure that connected itself to to James Bond was through the Nintendo 64 video game GoldenEye and also <laughs> through the Austin Powers movies. Um, so uh, that was the that was the point of of contact and connection where, you know, I had enjoyed the parody without really knowing the without really knowing the source material. I guess in a way Austin was Powers was really my first. Yeah. Um, evidence of bond in my life was actually like all my classmates being like yeah baby and all that kind of nonsense and I never I didn't link it directly back to James Bond until much later in my life but that was really the first concept that I had of this like world of spy fiction especially in film oh and inspector gadget as well that was the other yeah yeah, that was the other figure (laughs) because the villains in both inspector gadget and in austin powers are based so explicitly on um blofeld the claw yeah um in the in the bond (laughs) films and the cat too and the cat yeah. yeah um so uh and Inspector Gadget had his Bond girl, which was his niece, Penny. <laughs> right. 
I mean, it's definitely like a, a spoof on right. Bond right. for right. sure. Yeah. And there's so many of them. Yeah. Like, well, there's even, um, th- I've been thinking more about ways that Bond pops up in culture. And one of them is in um, Emperor's New Groove. When Kronk has Cusco sort of in the sack and Cusco's unconscious, he does this whole like spy montage with his own little theme music as he's creeping through the city. And he has like these sounds, but everyone around him can hear what he's doing and they're mm-hmm. just kinda like, What Why is wrong you with you? Like but that? he's really into the like sneaky spyness of uh-huh. this moment uh-huh. for him. Yeah. It it feels like it's something that can be anywhere at mm-hmm. any time almost just some some sort of reference to bond and after watching all of the films now when i watch other things and other especially other spy films it's so evident the kind of influence that this franchise has had and some of the decisions that have been made the way that even like fight scenes are designed on on the screen what they look like um to the way that the characters dress of course tuxedos that kind of thing right. and there's just so much influence there and it permeates all through spy fiction, but even not spy stuff like <laughs> Emperor's New Groove is not sure. exactly what you would expect, but it does make sense. And so it, you know, it, I guess the other, the other point of contact that I guess I had with, with the franchise was through like one of its, uh, I guess sort of, pop cultural detractors um and that is the work of john le carre Mm -hmm. the um the british spy novelist who like uh ian fleming also has a background in intelligence um and uh in particular and uh if you've if you've read any of his books or seen any of the the film adaptations of um of his novels then you know you know what I'm talking about when I'm I'm talking about detractors and and reaction because so many of the spies in the center of his stories are just they look so shabby and yeah the major the, one we talk about is Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy right yeah everyone th- there's not any glamour in those stories uh, there's there's a lot of moral ambiguity around the characters but there's also a kind of um, I don't know, a sort of brutalist coldness in uh, in the interiors of a lot of the buildings. Um, you know, it's a lot of uh, it's a lot of office work. Um, it's a lot of waiting and being bored and hungry, which is what um, was so entertaining when we read Who is Vera Kelly? Yeah. And mm-hmm. like, yeah, going back to that episode and thinking like one of the things that struck all three of us so much was how bored she was. Yeah, yes. right. So much of the sitting so around much of waiting. Her, so much of her spy stuff is just sitting in an apartment, looking out the window at another apartment. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And you definitely, you, you definitely get that sense of, um, that sense of tedium and potentially a sense of, um, also a sense of paranoia, um, in, uh, in Lacare's work. That's just not necessarily as present in bond where, the stories are moving forward. You know, it's like next beat, next beat. Now it's, now it's a bit, you know, we're amping up the stakes. It's just like, there's, especially with a film, you've got to, especially with a bond film, you've got to cut all of that out. Right. The paperwork. Oh yeah, definitely. All of that. um, Yes. (laughs) Bond's never seen like signing all these forms. Waiting for a memo. Yeah. Waiting. He doesn't have to, we don't see bond in Casino Royale going to finance to ask for another PO for $3 million. (laughs) Yeah. I need a new car. Right. We actually, I will say like the, the closest we get to something like that is his interactions with Q, who is like the tech guy. Right. And, he is often one of the things that really entertains me about the older films, especially is that Q is generally extremely annoyed by James Bond. Who and wouldn't the fact be, to that be honest? He keeps breaking things, yeah. <laughs> and he is problematic in the way that it's like, why would I give you my best tech when you're just going to break it? And that's the closest we get, especially in the earlier films, to this concept of bureaucracy mm-hmm. and this <laughs> the um, the pipeline of getting the things that you want to be able to play with. Right. And there's there's just something there about that dynamic, that push pull between the two of them that shows that maybe there's a little bit more to Bond than meets the eye. Like we see him as this villain as or not villain, as this hero, as this really good guy who's here to save the day, but like he goes back to work and he's just a schlub on the floor to this guy because he keeps breaking things. Like for us in the A V department, it's like <laughs> you break it. <laughs> 
And yeah, yeah we're going to remember that for a while. I have to order a, a new one now. Right. Great. <laughs> cool. And we're probably not going to trust you with the new one. No. You're going to have to regain You're going to need to be supervised. Sure. Yeah. So in talking about the the pervasiveness of of Bond as a uh, as a character and as a kind of archetypal secret agent figure in in our cultural imaginary i think that um i think that it makes sense now for us to talk about like in in more concrete terms about just how particularly pervasive uh that character has been across it it seems like probably all of uh all of media, like any popular media narrative form, uh, there there has been some version of Bond as a character that's popped up in there. Yeah, it sure seems like it. So there's the books, of course, and the films, as we know. Right. There has also been a television series, James Bond Jr. <laughs> James Bond Jr. <laughs> JJU. <laughs> um, there's been multiple games video games but also right. tabletop playing games rpgs mm-hmm. graphic novels and a comic strip that ran for 25 years in newspapers plus multiple radio dramas so this really this character in this world really expands across every single form of media that we i think know of today that yeah. i that i can really wrap my head around and he, to have that kind of impact, like I think, what other character do I know of that's really like that? I mean, short of a short of, short a of an Avenger hero, yeah. yeah, short of like Superman or Batman, even like those are, for me, those are even more pervasive than the than the Marvel ones, right. just because they've been around a little bit longer. And also to be able to hit radio drama, exactly. Like you're yeah. not going to get an Avenger kind of thing to show right. up there. But you are going to get really Superman, I think, in particular has had. Yeah. Because Superman Smashes the Clan was originally a radio drama. Yeah. Because if we're going to start with, with limiting it to like one person, one superhero, I think it would, the closest would be Superman. Yeah. Right. I'm thinking of all the iterations in TV shows because there's like Superman as a kid, then there's Superman's kids. And right. So I think that's sort of the closest we come. And um, unlike the superheroes, like unlike Superman, um, James Bond's a lot more relatable. It seems sure. right. Well, James Bond can't fly. Yeah, he's not an alien. He's not an alien. More powered by the sun, <laughs> as far <laughs> as we know. Anyway, yeah. he just keeps going. Um, and James Bond, in a way, especially the earlier films, he feels like he's almost immortal. Because yeah, especially the the Connery films, I feel like, and the Roger Moore films to an extent, never takes a bullet takes a licking and keeps on ticking kind of vibe like literally this, in the this first dude book and keeps going in the book and in the movie for casino royale that sort of like could be the tagline right <laughs> wind him up and watch him run i mean in the film especially how many times does he out survive the murderous attempts on his life yes like half a dozen at least um but it's a especially goes unaddressed in the early films because I don't think that's what everyone was wanting. They were wanting this Bond as a book. Casino Royale comes out in 1953. We're just starting with the Cold War. All of that's happening. We're just past World War II. The economy's in a good place, but we've got this. We've got the red, the red curtain hanging behind us, and everyone is looking for someone to root for, right? A good guy. And so then, nine years later, Dr. No comes out, which is the first film. And you have Connery in this role. And he is good guy. And he's fighting the good fight over and over and over again. A few years later, you get Goldfinger, which is really like when Bond hits the stratosphere. Because that film is just enormously huge and so popular when it came out. So you're really looking at like this time period for these films to come out. There's a lot of unease in the country with the Vietnam War, with the women's rights movement, with the civil rights movement. There's a lot going on and everyone's kind of looking for something that they can trust 
to get them through things and to just see what they think is a good guy fighting the good fight yes is certainly something that they can turn to for like comfort reading almost in a way but it's comfort watching instead because you know bond's gonna live to fight another day (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's something he's gonna die another day oh Oh my god so uh i mean it's something that we talked about on our um previous episode that focused on um, some sort of more surprising and unorthodox portrayals of spies and spy fiction um, where uh, we were thinking about the relationship between serialized narrative and spy fiction and how like in some ways you know to have spy stories means continuity across you know if not it's a if not the same character popping up in different stories and different scenarios and situations because you know you're going to die another day etc um then like the the um the persistence of the agency itself in some way and there are other stories to be told right, you know, about the, this 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 baffling flop of his name is always james bond he's always 007 despite right. the fact that you've had six different men play him yeah plus somehow one was married but the other uh kind of recognizes that he had a wife at one point See, that's what i think like there's weird a weird effort at continuity there yes that really forces you to have so much like suspension of disbelief that it's almost impossible to do because each new actor isn't a reboot no it's just a continuation whereas with like say with the or um, is it or is it yeah with the superhero movies we have this vibe that this is a reboot this right. is this this universe's take on it, or this character, this actor's take on it, this writer's take on it with the comics, but with the James Bond franchise across all the different multimedia formats, it's almost as if it's just continuing the story. I've never seen James Bond talked about as James Bond's getting a reboot. Right. It's just mm-hmm. this is the actor that's it's playing James Bond now. <laughs> yeah, this is the person who's playing this endless and in that immortal way, super or non-superhuman, regular human doing spy yeah. things. In that way, it sort of reminds me a little bit of soap operas because yes. if you've ever watched a soap opera <laughs> yes. for longer than a few years, you'll see that it was so funny to me the first time I saw it, and it's so memorable. This character came on the state on the onto the the screen, and it paused. For like three seconds and there was a little banner that said the character of this character will not be played by this actress and it just continued <laughs> and they do that kind of stuff all the time they just throw a new actor or actress in there and it's like this is who plays this character now we're just continuing the storyline right yeah and it's very very bizarre because i i do compare it in my head sometimes to something like the avengers films and i think about how iron man was portrayed in the recent films and the kind of send off that that character received. And there was like a full storyline about this character, everything with end game and infinity war and all of that stuff, wrapping up like multiple character arcs, you know, in different ways. And bond has never had that. Like he, it's just this dude's not immortal, but he's going to last literally forever. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and look yeah. completely different every three to four films, but it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Um, but that's one of those things that like, it's just a pitfall of a franchise lasting for so incredibly long. Like I, I think of the fast and furious films, right? Mm-hmm. I look at the first film versus the ninth film and the attempts to kind of retcon Vin Diesel's character in certain ways especially in the ninth film to make him look a certain way that is then incongruous with the first film and it's like I like I get what you're going for we have to try and do this I understand because at some point this the source material requires that you scramble in one direction or the other and that's the same with Bond but then imagine if Dom had been played by a different actor in all nine films it would have been hilarious. <laughs> All of them trying to have that voice. Oh, well, with the voice, that's another thing. The, uh, the actors just sort of have a lot of reign over how the character moves, how the character talks. The accents are all over the place. Right. Um, and so it's just a really fascinating study. Well, <laughs> it's also such an interesting thing to watch because... As you look at it time over over time, and this isn't necessarily something that the actor himself has control over, but when you look back at each era, they have different flavors. 
Connery was like the original Bond. Roger Moore was the funny Bond. Um, Lazenby was like the the one and done Bond. Dalton was the very serious Bond. Pierce Brosnan was like the techie Bond. Daniel Craig is the old Bond. So that's kind of like like this. There's an ebb and flow there in each era that's very interesting because I don't think it's determined like. Okay, for the time that we have Roger Moore, we're going to make him funny the whole time. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like they're going to lock that in and say this is it. And Lazenby, I don't think there was any plan for him to just do the one film. Um, but he decided afterward that he was done with it. Mm-hmm. So there I don't there's this weird like defining the legacy as you go kind of thing mm-hmm. that's very interesting to look at over time. Um, because then when you start postulating out into the future it's like well what's missing here we've got old bond mean bond (laughs) fun bond like there's Mm -hmm. what do we where do we turn to next you know where do we continue to balance the franchise so as the one of the three of us that has the most experience with it how do you think that craig lived up to it and where do you think that's going because from my perspective of someone who is just kind of casually following bond a lot more in the last two weeks but (laughs) it seems someone forced you to do that i wonder who (laughs) it seems that the next bond film might it seems like it's going to be craig's last is that going to be a send-off for him yes no time to die is his last film so what's that going to be like you know i don't know um could this be the first time we see a proper like send-off because I'm also thinking of a lot of the interviews that have been given over Craig's time about where the James Bond films are lacking and how they can improve. And mm-hmm. there's been lots of arguments that have said, maybe it's just time for James Bond to kind of kind of end and let, right. let another whole new character come along. Right. I don't, I think at this point, it's so, Bond as a franchise, as a character, is so entrenched in our culture That we could never say goodbye to it completely, I don't think. And, I mean, Barbara Broccoli, who runs Eon Productions, she's going to be wanting to do this until she dies. And probably after that, her family will take it over. And, I mean, it's such a money money Yeah, I mean, the money is always going to be there. (laughs) Yeah, they're going to keep doing it. Um, In terms of Craig's legacy, thinking back on it, I believe that this is actually the first time that they've really intended for this to be the final Bond film, and it was. Um, there was intent with Connery and Lazenby came and did one film and it, it didn't go particularly well. They brought Connery back for one more and then brought in Roger Moore after that. So there was that kind of bumpy trade off there. Um, and I, I believe Moore retired. So there might have been an effort there to kind of wrap up the Moore bond. Um, but Brazen and Dalton were not, I think things just weren't going well. So they were done after their films. And Craig is really, to me, the Craig era is so interesting because this is the first time that we really see a bond that is very mortal and is bound by his age. He's much older than most of the bonds. He's um, physically not in the best shape of any bond I've ever seen. <laughs> I mean, he looks good in Casino Royale, don't get me wrong, but by the time Skyfall hits, he's in rough shape, like real rough. Huh? <laughs> he's taken quite a few hits and licks, and he is honestly struggling, and he continues to do so through each film. So there's this real... Um, real reckoning with mortality in the Bond films that we had not seen before that. And I think that's really indicative of the time period in which we're watching films and what we as viewers expect from our films now. We don't necessarily expect or want just a very straightforward good guy, bad guy kind of story. And that's something that we've seen partially influenced by, I think, the Avengers films and so much superhero stuff that even the superheroes aren't straightforward good guys anymore. They have their personalities and they have their grapplings and their issues. And that's what we really see with the Craig film. So I think that that's probably going to be as his legacy is as really not just the old bond, but the complex bond. Oh, the complex bond. I Mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. So as we're thinking about and digging into the Craig era, Joseph, I was wondering if you could expand a little bit about 
Spectre in particular because that was that was kind of the film that I suggested to you for this podcast. Not Skyfall, which I nagged you about watching before. But specifically for this episode, I thought Spectre would be a good place for you. Yeah. Um, well, I like both of the both movies a lot. Um, and uh, and I thought that Spectre was interesting because of the the particular um, conflict that emerges in in the plot between um, essentially the status of the double O program um, and the emergence and the development of the nine eyes, um, like massive state surveillance and surveillance sharing, like international surveillance sharing program that, um, is, uh, is central to the plot of the film. Um, and, you know, I mean, it seemed, it, it did seem like one of the ways in which, um, one of the ways in which the the film uh, franchise was trying to bring the stories into the 21st century um, and at least give a nod to um, you know uh, whistleblowers like Edward Snowden and Chelsea Manning and others right. who um, who have uh, blown the lid off of a number of um, massive um, surveillance programs, uh, at least in the in the United States, um, and their entanglement with uh, the war on terror in in particular. Um, so you know, and I I just finished um, reading um, Spencer Ackerman's uh, uh, book. Uh, Reign of Terror, which is a sort of a history of the war on terror and how um, a lot of the politics and the infrastructure of the war on terror carried forward from 9-11 to uh, to the Trump era. And one of the subjects that was central to the discussion in that book was the surveillance state and the particular way in which surveillance infrastructure is bound up with military infrastructure um in particular making possible uh things like you know targeted drone strikes and so on and so forth and it seems like this is the direction that um nine eyes as a replacement to the double o program is uh is is trying to move um but that's that's kind of an argument that's made in skyfall like an early argument yeah what is the place of these people like the safety of spies because there are a number of spies that are burned their um true identities are revealed by the villain of the film and it becomes a very unsafe situation for them and so this mp is holding m accountable during what amounts to a congressional hearing and one of the arguments that she makes is what is the point of all of this there's no room for spies anymore in in this century and that's kind of the question that continues to be asked in Spectre, and it's not really a cleanly answered question. It's not, although um, Spectre, uh, the some of the plot in Spectre <laughs> pushes past that the point of even trying to answer that to simply say, hey, we can have this uh, massive surveillance technology, but if it falls into the wrong hands, you're going to end up with a real mess. Um which is right. uh, which is just true, um, <laughs> you know. Uh, you know, because something like that with that much power, it assumes virtuous actors. But if you have a nefarious actor um, uh, behind the boards, um, you you can have a lot of chaos on your hands. Which is deeply, deeply discussed and considered in the TV show Person of Interest. Yeah, because you have this ultra surveillance program that is meant to stop crime, but others are using it in order to control people. Right. And it becomes that balance of which, which are we really aiming for here? What's the ultimate goal of this and how do we determine whether it's good or bad? So, yeah, so that was a, that was a feature in inspector that definitely, um, definitely appealed to me with my, with a lot of my sort of historical and political um, interests in um, these these kind of inter interfaces between the state and forms of um, forms of technology, essentially. Uh, so you know, 
it made it it made it more appealing and it made it feel uh very much like of the moment in a way um you know i think and, and i'd be curious to see to what extent any of that continues in the um in no time to die uh if if it does i imagine it probably will i'll let you know yeah <laughs> I want to go back to what you said about M in this congressional hearing where she was trying to sort of make a point about what even does being a spy mean now. And one of the things that really struck me about reading the book and watching Casino Royale and really thinking about this stuff and what James Bond does. And from my research into characters on other shows, shows like Person of Interest, shows like Criminal Minds, shows that sort of have this kind of quasi spy like nature to them. I've looked at the reality of those jobs and the reality is a lot of desk work. The stuff that the characters do in the field does not happen in real life. Now, of course, that's not cute or sexy or fun, so we don't make TV shows and write books about it. But the reality of spies in the 21st century is probably just a lot of computers work. Yeah, It's just probably government employees sitting at their desk from 9 to 5 doing and hacking into systems and controlling different weapons and hacking into different agencies. It's not so much field work to gamble to bankrupt the leader of some organization. Right. The film Spy with Melissa McCarthy yes. actually does a great job of portraying that because she is an agent, but she works in like the basement of the FBI or something. She's and the she's one behind the scenes. Yeah, she's the And then the her one. agent. She's in the earpiece. That's her. And her agent is the one who's out doing all these glamorous things and wearing a tuxedo and whatever. But you really see, like, <laughs> like don't they have a rat problem mm-hmm. in yeah, the building? Yeah, it's a pretty terrible Yeah, it's building. like a, it's, you know, it's falling apart a little bit. <laughs> Which not to go too deep in the weeds with it but you can see that in a lot of government buildings it's a very common thing that we see across cities of it's a common thing we're seeing here in spartanburg yes. that's the whole reason our courthouse is being yes. torn down is because of the mold and the aging building and all that kind of asbestos issue. as well or had they had they I, removed i think that, that had been remediated okay, but the, the black mold was still <laughs> the a problem. black mold was the problem now <laughs> we yeah. are very glad for our fellow county colleagues that they are getting a new work yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah they need one And it's just something that was really interesting to see because even reading the book or watching James Bond, the movies, I'm like, even now this feels a little bit dated. This definitely feels like something more of the past, not something we're really doing anymore. Right. There's something, the, that moment in Skyfall after MI6 is blown up the building and they go into their underground bunker. (laughs) It's like perfectly pristine there are all these lights glass everywhere and it's like incorrect uh-uh, there would be like subway rats running around in we here have, there's no way we have in the library for all of our listeners we have this stairwell that is part of our emergency training of if we needed to evacuate the building very very quickly that's the only time any of the staff really go down in that stairwell and we all see like spider webs and such because yeah. it's a stairwell that no one uses and that's the reality of these types of things. If yeah. no one's using it, it's not going to be perfect, pristine, beautiful. It's right. going to be very dusty. There's going to be spiders and rats. He's going to be standing in the corner sneezing for three days straight. <laughs> yeah. Like that's what's going to happen. That's the reality of it. But James Bond is always able to kind of gloss over those yeah. things. And also I will say after the building blows up, he's gone for a little while and uh, has to, you know, they're working on the underneath parts cleaning that up i guess but it is still kind of there are parts of it that are run down where he does all of his training and stuff that look like they're half done mm-hmm. so they got the main room good <laughs> <laughs> like mom came to visit and you clean the living room Just but then the like the room. back rooms are busted <laughs> right That's don't kind go of in there it's like yeah don't go in there um but I think that's a real. I think that really sort of adds to the discussion of what even is James Bond. Right. After Daniel, after the Craig era, James Bond continues. It's too popular. It makes too much money. What happens with them? What does it look like? It's a great question. I wish I knew the answer. I would be so rich right now if I knew the answer. <laughs> you could just predict we that. don't even know what James Bond looks like physically speaking going forward sure. because there's all these questions about who will replace him, who should it be, what will they look like, will it be a black man, will it be a woman, could, you know, where could all of this go? 
And that's just a tricky question to answer. But I think there is still a place for Bond because there's still this place for kind of dissecting the darker corners of the world. Yes. And having that, the hope that maybe there's going to be someone out in that world who can fix certain things or stop certain things from happening. And I mean, that's the, that's the kind of thing that we've seen in movies like Kingsman. Um, there's just, there's so many spy and spy adjacent films and television shows that we see that we really, really enjoy that are going to continue to go forward. What I really like about Bond and what the way that I kind of plan to, I'm sure I will not be rewatching every single film. Some of them give me a headache. I can't do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some of them are legitimately bad and once was enough. Um, but when I go back and watch new newer ones and the ones that I really enjoy, one of, I think, my favorite lenses to look at the Bond film with that I haven't approached yet is looking at Bond as a villain instead of a hero Ooh. and seeing what that looks like because I really enjoy when a film goes beyond just like the flat out hero status of something. Mm -hmm. And I think if someone, you know, when I was first thinking about this, I thought of Ursula from the little mermaid Mm -hmm. and how she is portrayed as a villain. She's alone. She's in her cave. She has no, no family, no friends, no support system. She wants a thing. She's a lone wolf and she's going to do what she has to do in order to get the thing that she wants. James Bond has, most of those attributes. Yeah, definitely. And he's a lone wolf, doesn't have a family. His parents died when he was young. And there's actually a moment in the trailer for No Time to Die where the villain of the previous film, Inspector Blofeld, who's played wonderfully by Christoph Waltz, who's just a great actor, um, he looks at Bond and he says something to the effect of, I guess we're on the same side now. Mm-hmm. And James Bond says back, well, you live long enough. But the full phrase is actually, you die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain, mm-hmm. right? So there's that question there of, is he a villain? Because it's really not about um, whether he's doing good or bad. It's just who's gotten to tell his story first right. and which side of the story they're on. And in this case, we've been told that he's the good guy. We have to accept that. But I don't accept that with blind faith. I'm curious to see when I go back and rewatch some of these films what it looks like to see what's happening to him as the bad guy. Well, and we mentioned uh, um, some of the historical context uh, around uh, the initial publication of the some of the early Bond novels um, within the the context of of the cold war one of the things that was left out in that initial historical discussion is essentially the 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 tail end of and kind of crumbling away of the british empire uh, because you have um indian independence and partition in particular happening in 1947 right. um and you you see uh following from that all sorts of um post-colonial struggles um throughout the world uh that were bound up within a lot of those um a lot of those cold war politics in one way or another uh where you know uh revolutionary leader leaders from algeria to cuba to um uh to congo to wherever uh were were challenged by uh you know either uh, uh you know, insurgent leaders put up by MI6 or put up by the CIA, uh, and some of those leaders were assassinated. Yeah. Um, you know, and and so this is a this is another facet of of that particular uh, global struggle, and uh, another another dimension to the to the you know, the need for these, uh, for these undercover agents, um, and the particular plots that they're, that they're involved in. Um, and to kind of go along with what you said, when Bond comes out, it's not government sanctioned. It wasn't like Ian Fleming got an email saying, Hey, write these books, Sure, (laughs) but in their own way, they're propaganda or yeah, Jesus. Yeah. In their way, they're propaganda. Sure. Yeah, they're definitely the whole, look how good we're doing. We're fighting the bad right. guys. Isn't this great? Don't you want to do this? Yeah. Be part of this thing that's bigger than you. 
Yeah. Even though you're just one person, look at the impact that you can have. It's definitely um, can be read as a form of weaponizing nationalism. Sure. Absolutely. The sun never sets on the British Empire, right? I think that's sort of a thing where when you read it, read Bond as a villain, we are sort of, sort of always um, dissecting the zeitgeist of the Bond era too because it used to be that this type of, if we're calling that, this type of propaganda was very common, very popular, even going back to the superheroes. There was a big part of it, of nationalistic, we're the best, we have the best fighters, don't you want to join us kind of vibe to them. But now we're just a lot more critical of our governments all of the world powers are a lot more critical and doing their best to, uh, there's a lot of factions kind of doing their best to fight against what their government has established as the status quo for superiority. Right. And we see that in American politics in British politics in Chinese politics, we see it internationally of people rising up and saying, no, there are things that are wrong with this government. We're not going to just accept these stories anymore. And I think that's one of the things that James Bond as a villain sort of does, so has sort of reached a point of becoming a bit of the villain of the story. And it's interesting that there's parts of Daniel Craig's portrayal that sort of show Bond realizing that. Yeah. Yeah. It's something that he definitely struggles with. And um, in terms of understanding himself, not as a human being, but as a tool for the government, which in a way can sometimes or it sometimes is portrayed I think in pop culture as something subhuman like you're simply being used used and then discarded and that's something that Craig's Bond has to grapple with multiple times from uh, Vesper Lind and Casino Royale bringing it up as just him being used as a tool to um uh, multiple characters I think in Skyfall and Spectre kind of start to really dig into that I'm not mentioning Quantum of Solace because I try to forget that film it's so bad <laughs> hot takes here um, but it's it's something that is brought up with more openness than we see in any Bond before that and I think that's kind of that is also part of the way that you go forward with Bond is by continuing to be self-critical yeah yeah, and like in the Craig era, at least you can see some of that reflexivity around um, around his role as as a proxy, you know. Um, and it, it makes me wonder. It makes me wonder then, like, I don't know, thinking about thinking about Bond, uh, the the Bond character as this kind of like or figure of the spy um, in the popular imagination, and then thinking about all of the all of the responses and reactions and critiques and other things that not just have been an aspect of criticism, but have also been an aspect of popular art. Now it almost seems like maybe we're, maybe the franchise is at a place where it's integrated or reintegrated some of those forms of criticism, like your, your John le Carre's or your Charles McCary's yeah. or other, other writers where maybe a belated response, but it's a response all the same. Exactly. Yeah. It's sort of, it's, it's kind of built into and, and almost kind of anticipating some of those critiques in a way that might not have been, um, as present or might not have seemed as necessary, let's right. say in like a pre, um, in a pre nine 11 world, perhaps. Yeah. Or a pre me too world. For sure. Example. Sure. Um, because that's something that's definitely, I think going to be reflected in no time to die based on bringing Phoebe Waller bridge on to yeah. help rewrite some of the script. Um, she of Fleabag fame right, <laughs> and uh, fame of multiple other things. Yeah. But the, the quote that I've seen kind of hanging around no time to die from that perspective is that maybe Bond doesn't change, but the world around him does. Yeah. And that's a really important distinction to make. Even when watching the films of the older time period to consider the context because uh, part of the reason why I have such a hard time with the Connery era is because of the implicit racism, the explicit sexism, the really messy and problematic behavior that Bond exhibits, especially toward women. But uh, And it's very hard to digest that, but it's also a learning experience to see from whence we came and also for what we still need to do. And I'm hoping that with no time to die, one of the things that I see is this kind of 
evolution of the way that women are treated in the Bond films and the way that people of color are treated in the Bond films. People of color, it's been getting better, <laughs> I think. Um, and it's certainly moved at a good pace. But there is this this continual concept of the Bond girl that gets harder and harder for me to swallow with each film. As a fan of the genre and this franchise, what's something you're really excited about, Jess, with No Time to Die? What are some of the, you've gone into it a little bit, but just what's something you're excited about with this new film coming out in a couple of weeks? I mean, obviously all of it. Um. Okay, well, <laughs> thanks everyone for listening to our show. That's the yeah, end. That's Bye. It. <laughs> Here we go. I, so I've, <laughs> this film has been delayed. Four times now. What? No, it's not like any international conflict is happening. Well, it was delayed twice before COVID. Oh. So it's, yeah, it's been, yeah. Huh. Uh Uh-huh. Well, I didn't know that. (laughs) There have been script issues. There have been director issues. There have been injury issues, as there always are. (laughs) There have been just multiple issues. And then, of course, COVID hit right during so it was no time to write, Ugh. no time to heal, yeah, <laughs> no time to breathe, yeah, no time to buy uh-huh. toilet paper, and now it's time to watch. Now it's time to watch. <laughs> oh my god, boy! Sorry to everyone listening for the bad <laughs> jokes on this episode, um, but it's been coming for so long now. It feels like is this actually going to happen? And so I think for a lot of fans, myself included, it's just like the hope that it actually happens this time, <laughs> that it's released this time. I will say with every trailer I see, the more I think this is going to be a really good film. And I hope that I'm not heartbroken by that. <laughs> I don't think I will be. Um, I'm very excited to see Ana de Armas on the screen. I think she and Daniel Craig have great chemistry. They were in Knives Out together. Um, they're just a really fun pair. And she's just beautiful to watch on the screen. She has great capability of movement with her body. And that's a real treat. But I also, I've been listening to the theme song over and over again. Oh, Billie no. Eilish's uh, <laughs> No Time to Die, which is a really good song. I think it's a it's a solid entry into the bond theme canon which is just like one of the dumbest things i could say as a human being um but i think it's really strong and i've just been reading it and trying to get just squeeze every single droplet of clue that i can out of it (laughs) and i feel like i maybe know what's going to happen but i know by the time i get through sitting in that theater for two and a half hours what is it almost three two hours and 45 minutes yeah after i sit through there with my giant bucket of popcorn and my enormous barks root beer (laughs) and (laughs) sit there and don't blink for three hours straight because i'm so excited about it i just hope that when i come out I'm not like devastated, but I don't think I will be. And I think that's how a lot of fans feel right now. We're just hoping. It's like when your favorite band puts out a new album and you're terrified that it's going to be bad. Rihanna, looking at you. <laughs> Rihanna, we're waiting. If we you're listening. waiting, Rihanna. Yeah, if, we, if you're listening. Since you're definitely listening. Wow. Um, this might be, the, that may, that might be the biggest uh, stretch so far. If Rihanna? Yeah. <laughs> nah. Okay. You don't think Ryan North was the biggest strength? No, that was that was probably that's actually the closest, a close grab. Yeah, yeah the closest. <laughs> for well, no, Ryan North might be listening. I think we did a shout out to Thomas Pinchot. That's actually the 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 biggest. Stretch. He doesn't know how to internet. No, no, he would make a great spy. Thomas Pinchot. No Maybe one he knows is. what he looks like. Maybe he. Ah! Oh my god! We just blew this thing wide open. Maybe. No time to die. October eighth. Right, it's time for the Reader's Advisory Corner where we tell you what to read, watch, play next, or if you've already enjoyed some of this stuff, what else to check out. Joseph, what do you have for us? So I have uh, two titles that I want to recommend uh, this time in relation to our conversation today. Um, one of them is a video game. Um, it is uh, Metal Gear Solid Five: The Phantom Pain. Uh, also, if you can find the prequel to that, uh, Metal Gear Solid Five: Ground Zeroes, um, I would recommend both of those. Um, I'm sorry, did you say the Ground Zeroes? The Ground Zeroes, yeah. Multiple zeros. Ground Zeroes. <laughs> sorry, or that's what would it's it called. be the Ground Double O's? Oh. Oh well, I mean, it it is called Ground Zeroes, but um, 
but that's sort of like a prologue to uh, the Phantom Pain. But it is uh, it's the final title in a long running uh, popular series of stealth games um, created by Hideo Kojima. Um, and if you're if you're not familiar with the with the Metal Gear Solid series, um, the the mythology of the of the series and the the overarching narrative is so convoluted at this point and so complicated and the main character that you're playing has changed his particular code name so many times um you know it it really doesn't matter where you drop in just know that what you're playing is uh is a really exciting open world uh stealth game as a spy where you are sent on various missions um to solve uh all sorts of problems and find yourself ever deeper in um, networks upon networks of conspiracies, um, and and really the the object of the game is to go without detection for as long as possible uh, to get the information that you need to liberate the targets that need to be liberated, and 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 so on. Um, the games are incredibly cinematic in the way that they play out, not just in the terms of the in terms of the cutscenes and the particular actors that they get to do voice work on the series, uh, in the case of Metal Gear Solid Five, we have none other than Kiefer Sutherland as our as our main voice um, on the series. Which I thought that was really good, though. Oh, it's very good. Yeah, uh, it 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 makes a lot of sense um, in that in that context. But um, but again, they they they're cinematic. They're exciting. They're confusing and surprising um uh, which is always something you can expect from any of uh kojima's work uh they're also in some ways much more um paranoid and uh uh i don't know uh suspicious of the world of of espionage um beyond uh the 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 bond stories um and they certainly put us in this place where the the open question of who the real heroes and who the real villains are um stays open for the entire game and gets uh uh uh, rewritten and reimagined um as you play through the series Uh, so i want to put in a plug for that it's a it's a great game and um if you if you've never played those games, um, it's a it's a good one to pick up because it's it's the the last one for uh, sort of last generation um, consoles. Uh, the other title that I want to recommend is a film uh, from 1973 uh, called "The Spook Who Sat by the Door." It's based on Sam Greenlee's novel of the same title, and it is directed by uh, Ivan Dixon, and it's essentially um, a movie about um, it's a movie about CIA training and blowback, um, which is a familiar um, familiar phenomenon to to those of you out there that are interested in um, in the history of counterintelligence, um, as I am. And uh, it follows a, a, a character um, played by Lawrence Cook, who is uh, a black CIA agent. Uh, who um, leaves the CIA to train uh, guerrilla armies of um, essentially uh, uh, black revolutionaries in different cities in the United States. Um, It was an incredibly uh, controversial movie when it was released. Um, It was largely banned and suppressed from a number of popular markets, um, I think because of some of its content. But I'll tell you that uh, like so many classic films, you uh, you can watch it now and feel that it speaks to so many of the different concerns of of our present moment, whether we're talking about institutional racism, whether we're talking about police uh, uh surveillance and violence against black people and black neighborhoods whether we're talking about tokenism uh you name it uh the it's the the film is really expansive it's absolutely propulsive like a like a bond movie can be um but it just has that extra that extra kick of of being from a previous era and and feeling absolutely contemporary 
So those are my two my two recommendations. Uh, Carmenita, what do you have? I have one book that I read a few years ago, and it's a book I'm always thinking about rereading. Um, it's a trilogy, and the third book has come out, so it's on my short list of rereads. The first book is called Amberlow, and it's by Laura Elena Donnelly. This book perfectly dovetails with Joseph's wreck for things that sort of muddy the waters between who about who is good and who is bad and who's the hero and who's the villain. This is a sort of um, a bit of a fantasy, not in the way that it has a lot of fantastical elements to it, but in the way that it is a bit of an alternate reality kind of vibe to this story. So it has a lot of art deco inspiration and it is essentially about a country on the brink of fascism, like a lot of countries were in the mid 1900s. And at the center of this is this spy named Cyril who is on his government side, but then his government starts to do some shady things and so he starts to switch to the other side. And a big reason that he's switching to the other side is that he's starting to get into the thick of the homophobia of his government of his government and wants desperately to protect his smuggler burlesque star boyfriend who owns a nightclub and is also smuggling drugs people goods into the harbors all night long and is himself a really shady character and there's a couple of other burlesque dancer type characters thrown into the mix it has a lot of subterfuge and it has a lot of the um will they won't they kind of love affair because i wouldn't wouldn't really call this a romance because these are two characters who are really struggling to figure out who they can trust and they don't really know that they can trust each other even though they do desperately love each other so it has a little bit of romance a little bit of intrigue and tons of political machinations so that's sort of my james bond pairing and now i'm really i'm actually genuinely super pumped about rereading it even more so than before now that i have some sort of james bond backing for nice. it so jess what about you I'd uh, like to recommend not necessarily something specific in terms of a title, um, but a mindset for James Bond. Movie mindset. Which is, yeah, the next time that you watch a Bond film, think of it critically from a female perspective. Um, It's not something we've really touched on a whole lot during this episode, but to think about the number of films that there are, Bond films total, 26 thus far, um, only two have had main female villains, but every single one has had at least two sexual partners of James Bond. Um, Bond girls are used and abused in a really certain and specific way that I think is going to be deeply explored in No Time to Die. And I think if you're going to watch No Time to Die and you want to be thoughtful about that and and think a little more deeply about what it looks like for Bond and the Me Too movement and this era where we're really actually hopefully trying to do more with our female characters. Um, it behooves us to see where we came from. And the two films that have main female villains are The World Is Not Enough, um, which is a Pierce Brosnan film, and then From Russia With Love, which is the very second film. And that's a long gap to go. And if uh, Daniel Craig had some kind of uh, controversial comments recently. It's always the thing of a headline makes out an interview to be much worse than it is. So right. a lot of the headlines um, from different pop culture websites. Um, Daniel Craig doesn't think a woman should play Bond. Yes. So really <laughs> what he was saying is there need to be more roles for women right. in these movies, period. Yes. Not necessarily just that we should be focusing on Bond, and I completely agree with that. Yeah, and that's sort of a common and take. that includes the villain. Yeah, that's sort of a common take from people, from actors in beloved franchises that gets often misconstrued where the actor or actress says, you know, I don't really think that the people that haven't been included in this role should be included in this role in the future because I think that more roles should be included for this. And it's happened with a lot of different franchises and every single time the headline across all the different websites and platforms is, this actor hates women. Yeah. <laughs> That's and never also, what it means. To the women of the world, the women who are listening, think about it for a second. After we've just talked about James Bond and his, his questionable duty to the world as a character, is that someone you really want a woman playing? Yeah. Right. I don't know that I do. I don't know that I want to see that. I, I think we can do better. 
I, I sort of knew this, but I didn't really know it. But reading about it in the book and hearing it in the movie, there's lots of other double O's. Like, it's not yeah. just the seven. It's like, a whole program. It's a whole program. It's a, it's a title that is conferred upon spies in MI6 as they progress. Mm-hmm. That's sort of how it goes. So it makes me think of with librarianship there in government work in America, there are grades to your job. Are we double O's? We're double O's. Yeah. <laughs> so like there's like grade 23 and yeah, grade, grade 35. And in one library, there can be a lot of people at the same grade. So that's huh? what I'm thinking of with double O's. Like I just imagine it like that. There could be lots of opportunity for a female, a woman, or a person of color to play any of the other double O roles. Absolutely. And I think that's a really great lens to, I like that homework assignment for us. Thanks. <laughs> I try. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Book Lovers Podcast. All our titles are available in the Spartanburg County Public Library's collections via spartanburglibraries.org. For more information about the titles discussed on this episode, or to learn more about us, check out our website, booklovespodcast.squarespace.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to Book Lovers on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.